So by vocation, a is an MD psychiatrist with the U.S. with the Indian Armed Forces. His uh, seeking is the mother in his life. So without further ado, I'd like to bring a look on stage. Bari, uh, your this session has left actually, at least it has left me speechless. <laughs> it's too quick a transition to come out from uh, divine love to this ignorant <laughs> human journey. <laughs> and you all will have to excuse me for I am the culprit to bring everyone out. <laughs> As the guys, speakers, I'm reminded of a small little uh, joke. Well, once a priest and a taxi driver, they both died. And so happened they stood on the doors of the, the judgment. And God, the judge, tells the priest, Look, take this wooden staff and wear this cotton robe and find your way to heaven. Priest was a little disillusioned, he tried to rattle off all the prayers he had done and all the things he had talked about him. But God was not to be taken by these things. He said, look, I told you, this is my decree. Next came the taxi driver and he was asked, who are you? Well, I am a small time cabman. Well, take this silver robe and this golden staff and there will be a guide who will conduct you to heaven. Uh, this time, priest was a little... He didn't feel quite comfortable about it. <laughs> so he asked, well, what kind of judgment is this? God said, this is a very fair judgment. While you prayed and thanked God, everyone slept. Whereas while he drove, people prayed and thanked God. <laughs> so, so I feel like a priest who has been handed the wooden staff <laughs> while all the home organizers are like the driver who are conveniently walking with the golden staff <laughs> quietly doing such a wonderful work. So I do wish to thank each and every one for such a marvelous opportunity. So the story of evolution is... Uh, Someone has rightly said that if you take the entire history of from the point of time creation began, man would be just a few minutes or maybe a few hours old. So that's about perhaps revolution and manifestation. And to cover those billions of years, I wonder, uh, so if, if I exceed spill over the time, please excuse me because we are talking about the timeless. I am going to try not to. Yeah. Uh, in, in fact, the story of evolution is the story of the mother. And sometimes I just wonder when people speak about the mother as she was born in so and so date and so and so year and she left her body. She herself said, my child, I am millions of years old and I am waiting. Whenever and wherever there was a ray to manifest upon earth. I was there. That is the mother whom we adore. She is the one whom we love. And the story of evolution is nothing without her. At the head she stands 
of birth and toil and fate. In their slow rounds, the cycles turn to her call. Alone, her hands can change time's dragon base. Hers is the mystery the night conceals. The spirit's alchemist energy is hers. She is the golden bridge, the wonderful fire. The luminous heart of the unknown is she, a power of silence in the depths of God. She is the force, the inevitable word, the magnet of our difficult ascent, the sun from which we kindle all our suns, the light that leans from the unrealized wasps, the joy that beckons from the impossible, the might of all that never yet came down. All nature dumbly calls to her alone to heal with her feet the aching throb of life and break the seals on the dim soul of man and kindle her fire in the closed heart of things. All here shall be one day her sweetness is home. All contraries prepare her harmony. Towards her, our knowledge climbs, our passion gropes. In her miraculous rapture we shall dwell. Her clasp will turn to ecstasy our pain. In her confirmed, because transformed in her, our self shall be oneself with all through her. In these few lines, Shobindra has packed the entire story of creation, the entire story of evolution. It's basically the labor of the gods, laboring to bring the Godhead concealed in the dumb bosom of this earth. And it's here that we find what has been missing, the missing link. There has been a lot of talk, in fact, when we come to the theories of evolution, there have been basically four main theories. And the interesting part is that why did this theory come at all? The theory of evolution came because uh, man was trying to explain the infinite diversity of life. How come this infinite diversity come, come about? And we know that there is a very, very ancient theory. The Upanishads speak about it. It says, Ekam Vijam Bahudhariyat Karushi. One became the many. There was another theory that one created the many. A very subtle distinction. One became the many and one created the many. And there was a third theory which came, which came with the resurgence of modern science. It was not so much the theory of infinite diversity but the appearance of life. And it has been given by no less people than uh, of the caliber of Watson Crick of DNA fame. It's the theory of panspermia. They say that it's impossible to imagine that by any chance, by any kind of calculation, life could come into existence by any combination of amino acids. It's just impossible to do it by chance. So the theory is that life did not originate here, but it came from some planet here on earth. Somebody injected life, a spaceship, and after that, well, it's a natural law and cause, cause and effect. Shobindra, in one of his letters way back, refutes this theory. In fact, he says, 
It doesn't explain anything. In fact, he's pointing at the hollowness of all our understanding. He says it doesn't explain anything. It pushes the question one step behind. The question is not how life came into this planet. The question is how life came into existence at all, whether here or elsewhere. So, the theory which came last and which is most popularly known today is Darwinism, and subsequently there have been many, many changes to it, and we are not really talking about science, at least, uh, I mean, I'll be trying not to enter into that territory unless there are some specific questions we could deal with that. Uh, what Darwin said, said in a sense, he is misunderstood as having said that uh, it's survival of the fittest, that was a philosophical derivation by someone else. What he said was, he gave the theory of natural selection, that nature selects, there is a kind of selection going on and in that whatever form of organism is more, more capable, more uh, able to adapt to environment, more able to grow and evolve or survive, that form is selected by nature, the rest is wiped out. Uh, there are many catches, many ifs and buts to that. But let's take it at its face value and see how Shirdindo adds what is missing there. One thing is when we talk about nature, what is nature? Very beautifully Shirdindo brings out in Savitri, all now seems nature's massed machinery, an endless servitude to material rule, her empire of unconscious deft device and long determinations rigid chain. But then, after describing all that, he says very beautifully, but wisdom comes and vision grows within. A godhead stands behind the brute machine. So this whole idea about nature, nature is not a mechanical, inconscient something which on its own, much like a machine, creating randomly this wonderful place, Redwood Hall. And we say, well, it's all come, just like that. So there is something which is working behind nature. There is an intent in nature. There is something involved in the very heart of matter. And this something which is involved is coming out. This consciousness, this involved supermind, in fact, this is seen everywhere. Involved. Now it's Shurabindu uncovers it. But it is this involved supermind which, through its real idea, through its intelligent will, <coughs> governs the entire process, which makes the indeterminate, which throws it into patterns, shapes, forms, figures, for a progressive manifestation of the infinite on a finite basis. So it is this which we find is the story of evolution. Now, what is its practical significance? Because if it's just going to remain at a level of theory and philosophy, it has no meaning. What is the practical significance of this? It means we can participate in this process. We are not unconscious beings. Nature is not unconscious. And how do we participate? It's very simple. People put I mean, one can look at the same thing in very complex ways, but it's very simple. How do we participate in this new creation? This is a question we all have been raising to ourselves because the theme is realizing the new creation. Well, matter is something very wonderful. And one of the Vedas brings out very beautifully that there are only two poles where there is truth, matter and spirit, and in between there is falsehood. Now, it's, it's a kind of way of saying 
that there is an integral truth at the level of matter and there is an integral truth above. And in between you have shades and glimpses. Now matter is something very wonderful because it records <coughs> everything very, very faithfully. That's why one of the things we say, doing is remembering, not knowing is remembering. Doing is remembering. You may know all about a computer, but you just handle it once, the keys, and you know it. It's doing is remembering, you remember it. So matter remembers, each impress upon it, it remembers. It is this which leads to the evolutionary process. What yesterday uh, Linda was referring to as morphogenetic resonance principle, that whatever has gone effort and attempt that has touched matter, remains as a small little vibration there and that has the effect of contagion. How we can participate? We need not do very big things. We can do a very small thing, just a little thought. A thought which is turned towards the divine is causes an impression upon matter. It's like a recording disc. It's a small little chip and the record remains there. We may not see its effect immediately. But there is an effect which is taking place, it is taking place in the entire atmosphere because even a tiny pebble line idly on the shore has its effect upon the hemispheres. And our small little thought, our small little victories, every feeling, everything has an impress upon matter and this leads to the mighty change which we see over the centuries. There is a lot of talk also about physical transformation. And we find something very beautiful in uh, Dave's question about reading Shurabindo. And the mother says something very significant. We talk about cellular conditioning and physical transformation. In fact, that's one of the gifts we have learned through the process of cloning that these cells can be deconditioned. If there is one message that is there, it is this. They just habit and conditioning that the cells must behave in a certain way. You can make them unconditioned and they can behave in entirely different ways than what they have been used to. So this is one of the things. Now, how exactly we can participate even in this physical transformation? The mother says something very interesting. She says about reading Shurabindo. She gives a clue there. She says, be as quiet as possible. Do not try to understand with the mind. Read a little at a time these words will enter into your consciousness and do their work of transformation in you. And what kind of transformation? If necessary, create not the words, create new brain cells for the understanding. What are these new brain cells? Where do they come from? These are like little droppings of light, little seeds of light. You do not know where these cells are being implanted. And these little seeds of light which are created by the mere fact of just reading, reading quietly, reading with a view to receive it, to absorb it. And these little seeds do their work of transformation because Matter is one, because there is a contagion, because the brain and body are one, because the brain has an effect upon the entire organism. What is recorded in one part of the body gets automatically translated in everything else. 
So such a wonderful, such a simple way of entering into the whole process of a physical change, a transmutation. So this is one of the things about the selection of nature. That nature selects, no, we can choose to select. We can participate in that selection. We can select what will help in the evolutionary process. Another thing which has been again mistranslated in the theory of evolution, which gives a very different meaning, is the whole idea of survival of the fittest. This was not originally Darwin's idea, and the man who first mentioned it was Herbert Spencer. Most, I think all of us know about it. And a whole lot of polity and economics and our thought today is based upon this idea derived from Darwin. That there is survival of the fittest. The fittest survives. And one may wonder, one may turn back to Herbert Spencer and ask him, what is fitter? An oak tree surviving for thousands of years? A bacillus which beats man? Or this human being, so frail, so fragile? One would ask him. Just a few days back, I was reading in the newspaper here, right here, that um, a, a new strain of Staphylococcus has um, emerged, not developed, has emerged, and it is... Uh, outdone all the possible antibiotics. It's a mutant strain. Now, isn't it strange? Doesn't it strike us sitting in our laboratories that billions of dollars we spend on discovering an antibiotic which will beat a bacillus with the human intelligence fully at its peak in the most happening place in the world. And here is a tiny little bacillus with nothing, no dollars at its disposal, with absolutely, absolutely no knowledge and happily it has not gone to any medical school <laughs> where they teach you how to kill humans. <laughs> but strangely, it develops from within a capacity to destroy or threaten the destruction of the entire race. And Shubhuda explains this phenomenon very beautifully. It's essentially because the whole thing is linked by a plan of oneness. And you cannot remove one link from the chain without affecting all others. Nature comes back. The year smallpox was eradicated was also the year that AIDS landed upon Earth. <laughs> the years that vaccines were being made were also the years when autoimmune diseases started entering into this atmosphere. It's a chain, it's a continuum. It's not just the survival of the fittest. If fittest, survival of the fittest were the only truth, then perhaps there was no need to go beyond the bacillus and the virus. They are practically immortal. We talk about immortality and viruses are immortal. They don't die. Even an animal is immortal, it doesn't die. So it's not just immortality for its own sake. It's for something greater, something a, a much greater truth as we'll see as we proceed on this journey, a fascinating journey of evolution. So this bacteria, this oak tree, this man survived and survival is not the truth, the truth is evolution. But what Herbert Spencer saw and what Darwin saw, there is a seed of truth in it. And the truth is the truth of struggle. Why there is struggle? Why there is clash of life with life? It is not clash of forms. That's our misinterpretation. It's a clash of life with life, struggling to discover a greater life. That's the whole beauty. It's life playing with life, it's life wrestling with life, it's life loving life, so that a greater and greater capacity of life can come out of it. This earth is packed with labor, 
throes of pain coerce her endlessly still. Pain is the hammer of the gods to break a dead resistance in the human heart, a slow inertia as of living stone. This is the significance of this struggle. This is the significance of pain. And this is the lesson of this aspect of theory in our own evolutionary journey. That all evolution takes place through pain. It's the pain of a new birth. No pain, no gain. If you just believe that we can pursue just pleasure and suddenly one day we will fly near as supramental beings or whatever beings, <laughs> we must remember that with every pleasure there is a gift. Buy one pleasure, get two shirts of pain free. <laughs> this is the truth of nature, we can't help it. It's given, it's a handout. It's right from beginning and there is a meaning in it because Otherwise, you would stop at a perfection, which is an encrusted perfection. There is no scope of error there. There is no scope of failure and fall. There is no scope of growth. It is like the perfection of a paralyzed child who makes no mistakes, but who cannot run to the Everest, who never falls. So there is pain. Pain is significant. Struggle is significant. And if we understand it, then we can utilize it in our everyday life for evolution. After all, what is pain? Who feels pain? Pain is felt to the ego. It's very interesting that in this world, you cannot escape the embrace of God. But you have two types of choices. You can embrace Him as God the wrestler. The way comes it. God the wrestler. Fine. He says, come, welcome. I don't mind meeting you in the arena of fight. Or we can embrace God as God the lover. In both cases, the ego is destroyed. But there is a difference. When we embrace God as God the wrestler, we feel pain. The touch of Mahakali. It is the inability for our substance to bear the delight. There is nothing else but delight. But it gives us pain because we are limited beings. This is my self, that is some other self. And when that self meets this self, there is pain. Essentially there is delight. But we don't experience it. Our senses, everything, the whole body is constituted shot through and through with this ignorance. With this ego, this divided consciousness. Which again as we see, we will discover that how this body itself will participate in this grand oneness. So this pain is nothing else but a reminder that I have reached the limits of my territories. Expand, get beyond, shatter these limitations, shatter these frames. Enter into that state where we can say, Tatra ko mohakasho ka ekatramanupashyate. He who has seen, who sees oneness everywhere, who experiences oneness everywhere, where shall he be deluded? How shall he have grief? Because he sees oneness everywhere. Towards this oneness, pain is leading us. This pain is essentially the labor pain of a new birth, the birth of a new manifestation, which we see today and we read in that. Uh, beautiful, uh, I think, uh, the dream work workshop, that lovely song, Dear Father, Dear Mother, tell me why there is pain, why there is cruelty, why there is all this. So here again we find the significance behind the unconscious struggle taking place in nature and the conscious struggle taking place in everybody's life. It's a struggle to grow out of our limited beings into vastness, vastness, vastness. Then we can talk about divine love, then we can talk about the supramental 
Once somebody asked about, asked the mother about the supramental acting upon earth, upon human beings. She says, my child, all of you are so limited. The supramental has no room to put itself in. Where will it enter? It will shatter the walls. The Vedic Vishis knew it. So they spoke about baking the clay through the process of suffering. It's not that one has to go through suffering, but the fire, the fire of purification which bakes the clay. And when it becomes fit, then it can hold the Niagara. You can keep it under the Niagara, it won't shatter. Otherwise it shatters into pieces. We speak about invoking God, we speak about you know calling the mother. Yes, but equally is the other ready. Otherwise it shatters, the vase shatters. And therefore, when God comes, when he shatters everything, we feel pain. There's a beautiful poem of Tagore. He says, uh, maybe if the Bengali comes, I'll say it and then I'll translate it in English, because it has its own flavor. Jake tumi bohite chaho apar premir bhar. We just had a meditation on divine love. Jake tumi bohite chaho apar premir bhar. Ekiye bare swave tumi ghochay dhavthar. He whom you want to bear the burden of your universal love. What you do to him? In one stroke, you take away all his supports. You shatter every limits. You tear away every veil that binds him. He whom you want to bear the burden of your universal love. And then what you do? Na thaketar manatman. He has neither pride nor humiliation. Both are taken away from him. He owns nothing. He possesses nothing. You take away his money. You take away his shelter. He becomes homeless. He becomes jobless. And then what you do to him? You put him on the street all alone. And what he sees when you put him on the street all alone, no limits, no bounds, everywhere he sees your oneness. That's how you prepare him to bear the burden of your universal love. That is the significance behind all our struggle and the message of the secret process of evolution taking place in life. The third thing about evolution, which today we are beginning to discover, of course this thought has first come in sociology, but even in biology now we are talking about, and here again there is a message for our individual life, that evolution is not moving in a straight line. Someone very rightly said, yes, it's not just that once we turn to the mother and everything is happening now from today, everything will be hunky-dory and all the time will be concentrated like great yogis and it moves in spirals. The entire collectivity moves in spirals. We say today we, we feel very great about today's civilization. We should see that wonderful movie, Planet of the Apes. Uh, I have seen the part one, I think part two has come recently. I don't know about the part two, so please don't curse me if you go and see and find something else. <laughs> but I can WhatsApp about the part one. It's a wonderful movie where the essence of the message is, the crux is that there have been cycles of evolution earlier where there has been destruction and we are recovering from a lost cycle. And this is what today even in biological discoveries, there have been cycles. I read a wonderful book in the ashram in Pondicherry, there is a book called Vimam Shastra. It's a book written in Sanskrit. And the interesting part is, it is said, it's, it's a very detailed book. And, and the Rishi says, I, Bharatwaj Rishi, along with 60 others, have been working on this project. If you have to put it in modern language, you would say, 
60 of us scientists have been working in this technical laboratory uh, of NASA and we are trying to bring out many aircrafts and he describes, you will be amazed, four types of aircraft. Now these four types, what are these? They are not Mirages and jet bombers. He says, four broad categories. And one is, which runs on fuel, the least category. The next is, Swachalit, automatic planes. And we say, ah, that's close to us. But he goes to the third category. He says, Tantra Chalit, a kind of inner technology. Oh, maybe we are close to it. We'll have thought and the, the computer chip linked together. And then he says, the Mantra Chalit, four types of aircraft. We have records in the past history of aircrafts which have been going just by the power of will. Humanity had advanced to all that state earlier. So what happened? What happened? It couldn't answer that one question, which at each point of individual life and our collective evolution, there is a question which is asked. It is the question that Sphinx asked us. Sphinx is that, uh, we all know that people who had to cross the Thibian desert, the Sphinx asked this question. That if you answer this question, you cross. Otherwise, I'll devote you and destroy you. And Shubhendu brings it very beautifully in his poem, A Vision of Science. He describes all the things that we can imagine are happening today, and he describes much more than that. In fact, the poem begins by saying, A century's progress was before my eyes. He has foreseen it all. That how we have fathomed into the sea, we have plunged into the space, we have measured the diameter of infinity. And all is done and religion has gone away. Naturally, that has to fade. So while religion is going, it is feeling very envious. It says, this science has destroyed me, but I must tell her that there is something more than you which will come. And this goddess, this angel of religion tells the angel of science. And it's very beautiful. It says, thou thinkest term and end for thee are not. But though thy pride is great, thou hast forgot the Sphinx that waits for thee beside the way. All questions thou mayest answer, but one day her question shall await thee. That reply, for they who cannot die. She slays them and their mangled bodies lie upon the highways of eternity. Therefore, if thou wouldst live, answer first this one thing. Who art thou in this dungeon laboring? Who art thou in this dungeon laboring? Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? This is a basic question. Then all spiritual seeking begins. This is the first answer. The other answers follow. They are the logical continuation. Civilizations are asked this question. And when they cannot answer, the entire golden city of Lanka is burnt away. Atlantis plunges into water, so much so that today we don't know whether such a city existed or not. Troy is destroyed in a trice. And all that we have discovered from all the remains of that ancient mighty city is the cup of Menelaus, in which he used to drink. The entire civilization has gone. Where has it vanished? So while it's very fine, the reason why these spirals take place is because something has been left undone. In each age, there is a concentration of evolutionary energy on a particular point of time, on a particular area. So we have the four ages, classically described. 
both we have the Satyug, the, the Dwapar and Treta and Kali, and we have the Golden Age, Silver Age, Bronze, and the Iron Age. And it's very interesting that in one age we have these four parts, we have the whole concentration on the spiritual growth. And the next stage we have the concentration on the mind and its activities, the great philosophy, the systems, they are born in that. And then in the third age we have a focus on the vital force, the sentimentality, the emotions, <coughs> the, the life energy. And we have the age of heroism. The great epics are belong to that era. era. And finally we have the age in which work is done on matter. And so we have this great age. But the beauty is, when the cycle goes up, it does not retrace its steps back. It takes a leap. From the Iron Age, we jump to a new Golden Age. Because there has been a readiness. So all this is a readiness. But before the plunge is taken, there is a question that springs asked. That who are you? You want to pass through to a new new creation, to a new age, you all are aspiring to be aspirants for the new creation. Who are you? Well, I am so and so, I come from so and so place and I have been a devotee of the mother and Sri Oh, is it? <laughs> Go back. Takes <laughs> time. Who are you? Oh, I have been doing yoga for many years. You know, I am a very senior and advanced sadhak. Oh, is it? Back, back. <laughs> a small little child comes. Who are you? I don't know. Okay, good. Stay yes. You are a candidate. <laughs> All humility. So this is it. What is our self-identity? That makes us pass through the gates. This self-identity of being. Just nothing else but a child. Very beautifully, Arindanta had pointed out. It's not the supramentalization, it's not for its own sake. It is because it will manifest the divine. There is nothing like an individual supramentalization. The very idea is an egoistic seeking. It is seeking the divine for the sake of the divine. Yoga is not done for becoming a yogi. Shurabhinder has very beautifully pointed out in his letters. The object of this yoga is not to become a great yogi, not to become a superman, not to become a guru, and one may add, not to become a lecturer and you know talker. <laughs> These are not shameless words. <laughs> You'll be very kind and compassionate, spare the whole category. But all the same. <laughs> it's not to become that. The object is to live in the divine, to live for the sake of the divine, to live for manifesting the divine. And it is for that that the supramentalization is necessary. The supramental change, the evolution is necessary not for the sake of just our ignorant human cry that I am so limited, helpless, make me something special, something great. Maybe I want to fly in the air without having to wait for the tickets. It takes so much time. I want to develop a capacity that I can know everybody's thought. Besides, it will be a very inconvenient thing because there is so much of darkness inside. <laughs> So thank goodness Divine veils all this from us, it's His grace. Ignorance is a protective sheet. It doesn't break unless we are ready. So, not for these things, but because, well, you have to manifest. It is the Divine who has to manifest. And this Adhar, this instrumentality is not at all adequate to manifest Him. It is for that sake that the Yoga is done, not for oneself at all. 
So this is where we find the spirals. There is a rise, there is a peak, and there is a fall. And then there is another peak. And this takes place in cycles, through millenniums, through, through, through great races, through civilizations. But it also takes place through individuals. At our individual level also we find that sadhana progresses very well. You are thinking, oh wonderful, ah, I am so close, such nice, happiness, bliss, all is peace. And one little stroke from outside, and there, back. <laughs> and Shodhiva describes it very beautifully, with a heart full of compassion. He says, the, like a child who learns to walk, but can walk not for long. Like a child who learns to walk, but can walk not for long, replace the titan will forever to climb or an old subconscious cord of strings renews or a blind or, or the blind driven inertia of her base these things pull us down the blind driven inertia of her base the subconscious cords, the subconscious vibration which have not been worked upon we are rising very high, wonderful, very good Ah, what bhakti is taking place, what illuminations are coming, lovely visions. And Shivindu used to talk about these visions very beautifully. We will see how, as we proceed on this evolutionary journey, how these things can also mislead. And he says, then something pulls us down. The subconscious, the pull of the old subconscious cords renews. And we are pulled down. But there is a but. And that is the but of grace. He says, this too the supreme diplomat can use. He makes of our fall a means to greater rise. It's like using it as a jumping board. How does he make a means to greater rise? It's very simple. Something was left undone. It was all the time dragging us down. All the time. Even on our peaks it was dragging us down. So he says, come back. Do this job. When we do this job, it makes it a means to greater rise. Even errors and fall in this scheme of things, even waste has its own utility in evolutionary process. Someone asked, why has God made weeds along with corns? The answer was very simple. If there were no weeds, the corns would be eaten away by the crows much before. So the defects of nature, even difficulties of nature, they serve a purpose in the grand plan of nature. One who has shaped this world is ever its lord. Our errors are his steps upon the way. He works through the fierce vicissitudes of our lives. He works through the hard breath of battle and toil. He works through our sins, our sorrows and our tears. He, he doesn't just work when we are sitting in a nice cozy conference hall in Redwood Hall and invoking the mother's presence. He is working even when we are indulging in what we call a sin. Because he comes unseen into our darker parts and not seen by our eyes does his work. This is not an excuse for indulgence. That should be very amply clear. Yes, he works. And he works. It is an excuse for hope. What he says is there is a hope. Once one has turned, do not get worried because things are coming down. The spiral has gone up. It's coming down because it's an integral movement. It's not just a yoga which is of Vedanta that okay, the mind lives in the infinite and speaks about oneness. 
But what happened to the man who spoke about oneness when he saw the elephant coming from the other side? Yeah. So he says, I am Brahman, you are Brahman. So what can Brahman do to Brahman? So the man sitting on top of the elephant, he said, you are maybe a philosopher. Maybe a realized soul, but get out of the way. <laughs> he said, my guru has taught me, all is Brahman. Nothing will happen to me. So the elephant came, twisted his tongue, threw him on the roadside. Bruised and battered, this man rushes to his guru. He says, what message you taught me, sir? <laughs> he says, you don't hear the full thing. You just quote me half. We do that with Shuramindu, no? <laughs> Whatever suits me. When I do all kinds of mistake, I quote Shuramindu. <laughs> Not realizing what is that greatness. Or when I have to, you know, when somebody is not to my liking, I say, he's a hostile force, you know. <laughs> this is oh, I am doing sadhana. Oh, pure one. <laughs> These are the usual things. So the Guru says, you are misquoting me, you are quoting me half. Yes, all is Brahman, but apply it rightly. The Mahavat is also Brahman, the man on the top of elephant is also Brahman. You didn't listen to him, he was telling you to get out of the, out of the way. So naturally, so we may, it's not just a yoga where the mind gets into a state, ah, wonderful. The heart may still be vibrating at a very, very narrow bound. It may be attached to the small, petty things to weak emotions, sentiments. So, when we turn to yoga, first everything is very beautiful. And suddenly we find, what's happening, mother? This is like a cleansing process. She takes us into the speed roller and you know, patak patak ki, you know, literally. She washes us dry, tumbling down. So what is happening? At the level of the emotions, something was tying us. She's freeing us from that. And we say, oh mother, oh mother, please, please. She says, no, please. Go to school. I am Mahakali also. <laughs> Next, we think, ah, emotions, we are relatively free. So nice, but no breathing space. Right? <laughs> Next, we are thrown into the whatever white All petty desires. You thought you are not greedy at all. Suddenly, you find that little jalebi. Jalebi had to come. Sorry, I have been eating jalebis every day, so it had to come in the talk Reminded me of evolution. The evolution is like this. No? Spiral going is like this. So, so the spiral of jalebi, we think, oh, we have overcome greed. And the little jalebi, ah, that's it. So there it works and works. And when we have thought, ah, relatively free, wonderful, I have ultimately become pure and immaculate. And then one blow and everything shatters. The whole house of card collapses. Why? Because there was a basic insincerity. There is something undone. So this is the spiral motion in through which the sadhana climbs, through which evolution climbs, through which cycles of civilization climb. The same law which applies to the universe applies to the individual. And what applies to the individual equally applies to the universe. Universes are born, they die, they are reborn. Nations are born, they die, they are reborn. Men are dying and they are reborn. Men die so that God may live. That is the secret. Civilizations perish so that God may manifest. Millenniums pass so that the hour of God may strike. That is the significance behind all this movement. And you have to look with a very, very vast outlook and not be just given into few days, few you know, decades and few centuries and with an impatience. 
there is a whole, there is a beautiful, this, there is a picture of Sri which I think this year's calendar or last year came, and beautiful line from Savitri, a wide, unshaken look on time's unrest, where space becomes a single body, time a single book. The whole wideness, that wideness, that liberates. It is towards that that evolution is taking place. It's an inner wideness. It's not just an outer wideness. Inner wideness. We may be able to travel from here to New York in one hop, or to New Delhi in one hop. But still, our hearts may be constrained. It may be limited. It is that which has to expand beyond all frontiers. That is the expansion of consciousness. Otherwise, civilizations crumble and they are brought down. Individuals face the enigma of death and they are destroyed. So this is the third law of evolution, the spiral movement. The fourth is very beautiful. What yesterday uh, we were talking about, the punctuated equilibrium. There is leaps, there is preparation and there is a leap. The preparation is much like the egg in the shell, the, the chick in the egg. It's a whole hatching process. The chick does not see the mother hen brooding over it. And it is, maybe if it could be conscious, it is struggling, coming out, no way, no door of escape. It tries to peck from inside, but it doesn't work out. Much like us trying to break the wall from inside, all how to meditate, how to do sadhana, how to do this. And one day the mother hen knows that the chick is ready. And a small little peck and the chick comes out. That is punctuated equilibrium in very simple terms. It is simply that there is a time of preparation and a time of manifestation. And this biologists have brought out in a very interesting way. It's always like approaching the thing through a very, very tortuous way. That when they observe dolphins, they observe, my God, they have such wonderful sonars that uh, with the sound tracking device, it's perfect. I mean, it can really track minute objects in a very noisy environment. And for its evolution, you need many, many sort of sub-devices. So why would nature evolve one sub-device and wait and another sub-device and wait? Because those sub-devices have no purpose unless the final sonar comes into existence. So ideally, if it's a question of uh, you know natural selection, those things would have been wiped off. But suddenly, the dolphin emerges with a full-fledged sonar, which is perfect. So they spoke about punctuated equilibrium. But Shurabindu speaks about the hour of God. There are moments when the spirit moves among men. And God's breath is abroad upon the waters of our being. There are others when it retires. And men are left to live according to the strength or weakness of their egoism. That is what punctuated equilibrium means. That there is, and, and the lesson for all of us again, uh, how it affects our individual sadhana. First, not to be disheartened when we are putting in effort and nothing comes out. There is something hatching inside and one day it will come out. Because it's not that today, if I, it's not like a computer that we push, push a button in and after a few seconds the menu should come out. It should flock in. If it's not showing flock in, something is wrong. That's our impatience. Here, one may wait for 30 years and nothing is happening. And one day suddenly, the chick is ready and the mother hen knows when the chick is ready and there it comes out. And this faith, this happens because there is a law of intervention. And that Shurabindu brings out very beautifully when he talks about evolution. Yet a spiritual secret aid is there. 
while a tardy evolution's coils wind on, and nature use her way through adamant, a divine intervention thrones above, alive, rotating in a dead universe. We whirl not here upon a casual globe, an outstretched hand is felt upon our lives. It is near us in unnumbered bodies and parts. That's the secret. It's not that, oh, we have been abandoned to a task beyond our force. What task? It is her task. It is her work. She is doing it. What we need is patience, perseverance. The mother has repeatedly spoken about it. This is the law of evolution. In fact, transformation is what the earth has been made for. Sri is now revealing it to us because if we see the history of earth, there is nothing else but the series of transformations, one after another. The entire story of earth can be said, it is one transformation after another, after another, after another. This is the only thing happening and this is the only thing which will happen. And that's why Sri says, it is inevitable in the very logic of things. That is the logic. If in the meaningless void creation arose, if life could climb in the unconscious tree and thought sees the grey matter of the brain, why not the nameless life shall leap on me? So this is how it takes place, but it takes place through this process of intervention, the parable of the avatars, the, the, the fish avatar, the avatar in water, the avatar which is half land, half water, the avatar which runs on the land, the avatar which is half human, half animal. The avatar which is dwarf man, trying to measure the sky, the earth and the heavens. And yet, does not find a place to accommodate itself. The wild man, the cultured man, the man who goes beyond all, all things. So that is the whole story of evolution through interventions. And this is just a small path. We don't know how many other uh, interventions have been there. The mother recounts in the agenda about uh, a memory when she was, she has been there when there was a kind of material paradise on earth, which is what is the paradise of the subtle physical. Shodhana describes that beautiful world in, in, the, in the book of the Traveler of the Worlds, a material paradise because it's very close to a kind of a harmony with nature. And yet that paradise has to be left for a greater adventure. But there is a kind of material paradise where she, she remembers that she has been here. She came to start that whole process moving. The advent of man has been the result of an, uh, of an intervention. And this is what we have to remember. This is the message of this whole evolution. That through these interventions, the evolutionary leaps take on. They are carried forward. So what is missing? The missing link? The whole missing link is consciousness. Not archaeopteryx. Not the gut-filled platypus. And people are very thrilled when they discover it. Oh, we have found something like a missing link. Time covered a whole issue on the missing link between apes and man being found. But the real missing link is the link of consciousness. And that is another very interesting thing Shurabhuru says. He says, only nothing can come out of nothing. So if it is, if it is a void, then one doesn't expect anything to come out. But what is in the void is the seed of divine consciousness. And uses a very beautiful word, involution. Now this is again opens very many practical possibilities for us. Involution is what? Involution is just a tree involuting into a seed. 
the entire essence of the tree, the entire truth of the tree involutes and becomes a seed. It can also be understood by the play of colors. What is black? Black is not the absence of light. It is an involution of white. All the possibilities of white are contained in the black and begin to emerge as evolution takes place. So it is this involution and that opens a wonderful door in our day-to-day -day life. What is that door? How do we relate with people? This is a question we often ask. Do we become gruff, sadhaks, all indifferent to everybody and all in sight? Or if we relate, how do we relate? Do we relate on the basis of the normal conventional social methods? Or do we relate on the normal emotional ties? Or do we relate as a custom, as a habit, or a duty, or whatever? What is the way to relate? Well, in everyone there is that little seed. Shabindo reminds us of that story of Yadwal. When he is asked, when he had two wives. So it's an interesting story. So one wife says, you see, when it's very difficult, it's very dangerous to have two wives. Because, as you know, one loved the black hair, so she planned away the black hair, and the other loved the white hair. She planned away the white hair, and the man was left bald. But Yadwal was very lucky. Because one wife was sensible. So one of them asked Yadwal, when he is retiring, she says, see, you are going to leave your body soon or retiring wherever. Tell me what you have written in your will. So Yadwal says, oh, I have written all the house, property, income tax returns, I have filed letters and all this. He shows her all the assets, billion dollars assets. All this is in your name. So thank God. Anything, are you sure? How much you are giving to Matri? Don't worry about it. She, she just some few things for her. Okay, fine. That's okay, but majority chunk is coming to me? Yes, Yadwal assures her. Then his second wife, Maitri, asks him, Yadwal, tell me what you have for me. So he asks, yes, tell me what you want. The elder one has taken away things, now you also tell me. She says, tell me all that you have given to the elder one. Will this bring me happiness? Will this bring me peace in life? He says, no, that it won't. For all you know, you may lose your peace. Because you will get into security, you will get into everyday hassles, filing returns and all this. So it is not going to give that. But some comforts you may buy. Oh, no, I don't want this. So then, what else? Then she asks the secret. And Yadwal reveals a very wonderful secret. He says, Maitre, one does not love the wife for the sake of the wife, but for the sake of the self. One does not love the child for the sake of the child, but for the sake of the self. One does not love the country for the sake of the country, but for the sake of the self. Now here is a secret. Shobindu says very beautifully, this self, normally we relate with the world on the basis of the lower self. But equally, if we just remember that the self is in all, that is the same self in all beings, that it is that little seed of divine consciousness which is in all beings, and the entire crux of human relationship is to help in the emergence of that seed. How we can help, if at all? If we cannot help, then fair enough, let's step aside. But if at all, in our relationship, are we hindering in the growth of that seed or are we helping in the growth of that seed? In whatever it will be, that is the basis of human relationship. So this whole idea of involution, it is not just a mechanical process, but something is involuted and that is growing out, can have immense practical implications in our day-to-day -day living. That is the missing link, the link of consciousness which has gone inside and is coming out. That is about macroevolution. And then there is something about microevolution. Macro is from change from one species to another. 
but micro is within the human species. It's very interesting that very little has been talked about it. But Shurabindu talks immensely about it because that directly concerns us in our sadhana. We speak about big things, but let's see the small things. Where we stand, it's like a ladder. Microevolution is like a ladder. And there, death is a means, rebirth is a means, karma is a means. It's not, karma is not as it is understood, the way to carry it in one hand and you know, punishment rod in another. It's an evolutionary process. It's a means for evolution. Rebirth is a means for evolution. From ladder to ladder we climb. And there the entire hierarchy of pain so beautifully and logically shifting. It's very logical. Because when life comes, the first need of life is indeed to make sure that it can survive. It is the first need. And so we have at the microevolution level, the first plane, the of course we are skipping the subtle matter, the kingdom of the little life, the little life in which we live. And what is that life? Very beautifully, if you hear it, we we'll find an echo in our own heart somewhere. It says, in his own kind, he sensed his ego's glass. In his own kind, he sensed his ego's glass. Those with his blood or his custom kin, he felt his own. They were part of his ancient self. Those not his kind, in, in those not his kind, he sensed a foe, an alien force to shun and to fear. This is how a lot of our life is spent in the in, in that little life. Those with blood or custom kin. How interestingly, we find it everywhere. The two people who can relate, oh, from the same village, oh, very nice. Suddenly the whole sense comes. What is that? It's the kingdom of the little life. And feel, before we talk about big things in sadhana, let's take a step forward. Let's come out of that little life. We are still stuck there. And we climb from there to another level of life. Where survival and just staying within small boundaries, we expand our horizon. And that's why beyond preservation comes the need in life to expand and grow. But there also, life is an ignorant power, fumbling through fog in search of paradise. It fumbles through that. And there again, Shurabindo tells us that this life is a great, great imitator. This vital being, it can mimic everything. It can mimic the supramental. Once sitting in Delhi, in one of the centers, some people were talking about pranic healing and a person was a new entrant. Nowadays you give some money and you you know, can become a yogi in three days. <laughs> so easy, 14 days nirvana and all kinds of things. So after a, after a three day course, this man who had probably paid some 10,000 for a three day course. So you know, he was talking to his master. And he was telling him, you know, while I was meditating, I saw an orange light. I just overheard the conversation. <laughs> Three, four of us were there. So this man was little aware about Shurabindu's writing. He said, oh, you know what you saw? That orange light is the supramental light. So <laughs> that orange light is the supramental light. You have to be very careful. It can imitate the joys of the soul. It can imitate the peace. Everything it can imitate. The distinction is very subtle. And that is why Shobindu wants this. He says, aspiration should be intense but not impatient. Because 
in their enthusiastic speed. In fact, very beautifully in the yoga of Savitri, he describes this. This realm, its puja, dangerous and absolute, could mingle poison with the wine of God. These, uh, these uh, galloping hooves, in their enthusiast speed, would carry the rider into a nether realm where death walks wearing the robe of deathless life and truth lays with delight in error's arms. That is the kingdom of greater life and in our sadhana and of course there are in, in the normal course of evolution one goes with that where one thinks oh why we need a heaven on earth? This is heaven. Where is the need of heaven? We have no need for heaven. Look. I have everything at my push button. This is heaven on earth. I don't need anything else. But that's fine for people who are still involved there. But for sadhaks, it could be very dangerous to enter and stick in that realm. It's the valley of the intermediate plane where everything remixes. And that happens when we enter without purification. When the stress is not on purification, but just on having experiences. I want experiences. Mother, I want experiences. Well, experiences, Vital says, oh, you want experiences? I can give you experiences. <laughs> Why you are going so far as a supplemental? I can give you, here it is, come, sit, close your eyes and do this particular japa. Fine, and suddenly we see a light, oh, wonderful. Does that light change our consciousness? Do we become purer? Do we become vaster? Do we become full of peace? True peace, which has the power to as the mother says, <coughs> to make the arm of the assassin drop before us. That peace. That peace, to be, become full of that. Or is the joy just a thrill, which leaps like this and comes down like this? Or is that joy, the deep delight, which pervades in all things, which tears behind the mask of ugliness and sees beauty there? Is our joy that? That is the subtle discrimination, the subtle distinction. Where is that vastness? That is the thing we have to discover. And this is the kingdom of the greater life. And microevolution goes through that. Civilization goes through that. Individuals go through that. And worst of all, sadhas enter into that. And entering into that, see heavenly visions. And this Anshuogin, the ones very beautifully says, I have a bunch of sadhaks who are wallowing in the subconscious mud. Are seeing heavenly lights. So, <laughs> so one has to be very, very careful. This is just, you know, he's telling us. So to curb those galloping hoofs, which are out to enter into anywhere and everywhere, comes the little mind. It says, no, 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 that's the doubting Thomas. It says, a pygmy thought needing to live in bounds. It's, Shubhra elsewhere describes it as a schoolmaster with rule and law. Everything is rule and law. Abhorring change as an audacious sin. If you do anything other than what you know it wants, it's sin. But let us see why it came into existence. It came into existence precisely to that galloping steed which was leading life towards God knows where. So little mind comes. It questions everything. It doubts everything. It serves its purpose in the evolutionary scheme of things. But let us not rest there. And evolution does not rest there. It goes forward. It goes into a greater mind. And in that greater mind, again, ah, we measure the diameter of infinity. We 
make a formula out of the divine. Oh, divine! Well, I have understood the divine. You know those quarks which we have discovered? That is the divine. Uh-huh. The electron. The people have been talking about divine because they were not scientific. They were, after all, they didn't have the cathode ray oscilloscope and the linear accelerator, so they used terms like divine, you know. But basically, it is nothing as you have discovered. It's an electron. At last was discovered a thin substratum atomic universe, sure with those lines in Samadhi. And all this he talks at the end of the little mind. At last was discovered a thin subatomic, not atomic, subatomic substratum universe. But the greater mind still goes beyond. But at the end of it, after describing the whole discoveries of the greater mind, Shiva says, all was coerced into number, name and form. There was nothing left untold, incalculable. We can calculate God. Well, formula, sit into meditation, do this and there will be God. And you know what is God? We can measure Him also. There was no mystery left untold, incalculable. But all their wisdom was circled with a knot. And then the punchline, Shogun, there is a habit of giving punches, you know. And Savitri is so full of humor. Actually, it's really full of humor. So he says, all their wisdom was circled with a knot. By knowing too much, they missed the whole to be known. This is the punchline. By knowing too much. And the mighty heart of the mother was left unguessed. What is her name? In, in, uh, and there is a line which beautifully describes, I am not getting the, the full line, but it describes that by making a perfect form of her, they forgot the eyelashes of her dream print. It's a beautiful. The dream prints in her eyelashes, because that cannot be captured. That's something, the mystery of the incalculable. So that's where the greater mind in its adventure, the evolutionary journey goes up to that, and still, there is no end. The evolution goes still further. And that's where the revolution steps in. Because at that point of time, man begins to ask, Who am I? Who am I? Who am I in this dungeon laboring? What is all this? After knowing all this, still I'm like Narada. Narada, you know, Narada was a great sage. And he felt very unhappy once. He had done PhDs from Massachusetts Institutes and he had done, you know, technology. He mastered 64 types of Vidya. It's a fact. I am not joking. Okay, that time the MIT was situated in India. That is the only difference. <laughs> so those were the days when, you know, people... So, Taxila and all that. So he had done PhD in 64 subjects. But he was very unhappy. So he goes to every doctor. What's his name? And that time, psychiatrists, flourishing psychiatrists were in India. So, you know, he goes to the best psychiatrist and says, Look, I am unhappy. He says, Why, Narada? You have... Uh, so many degrees and his wife and happy. Go enjoy the world. He said, I can't do it. I'm unhappy. So he says, okay, come. Come every session, 45 minutes. I'll take $500. And that's it. So what will you do after all that? I'll write a bill. You know, we have discovered the latest. Very nice. I'll get some sleep. Yeah. What happens when I wake up? None of that you don't ask me. So what are the moves from there? So he goes from one place to another. But Narada has no relief. Then he goes to some well-meaning relatives. 
and this is Narada. Basically, you are a crazy man. Like you can tell all of us, you are crazy man. Why don't you get married? Lead a normal, healthy life. What is all this seeking and searching and who is God and where is God? What are you doing? Can't you live like a normal man? But Narada can't because he has reached the limits of the greater mind. The little mind can say that, live in your safe limits. And for that point, fair enough. Don't try. That's why mother said, don't convert anyone. We are not here to do that. There is, you will break the limits. Fair enough, there are people who reach at a point where they need to turn, they need to see. And those others will not understand. Very natural. So, he's, so he's, everybody says, Narada, you get married, you are just being foolish and uh, or get a nice job. You see, once you get money, everything will be fine. But Narada is a crazy man, he's already entered into the loony zone of yoga. <laughs> so finally, Narada goes and he meets this sage, Sanat Kumar. So he brings out, he's used to bring his biodata. He says, sir, here is my biodata, but I am unhappy. So sage sees all these things through the paper and, you know, the file goes back. He says, Narada, you know, tell me what have you have been taught in your university college. And Narada rattles out everything. He says, you know, have you been taught about that, having known which all else is known? Narada says, what, 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 what is that? <laughs> have you been taught about that? Having known which, all else is known. He says, about, uh, well, internet. No, no, I'm not talking about internet. I'm not talking about internet. Have you been taught that? Having known which, all else is known. No, sir. No PhD was offered to me. Nowadays, people do offer PhD in Shurabindo. But that's the thing apart. <laughs> God knows what is done there. But anyways, <laughs> so anyways, so nothing can be, so he says, well, I have not known that. He says, Narada, that's why you are unhappy. Know that. Know that. When you know that, then you will understand. What you are mistaking is the cause for the effects. And you are, you are just lost in that. Discover that. Yan mansana manute, yena hur manumata, tadeyu brahmantam vidhi, yetam yetam pasate. Know that, having known which all else is known. So Narada says, okay, fine, I am done. So when we reach a point of evolution, then this evolutionary journey enters into the phase which we call as the triple transformation, which we have a talk today about psychic transformation, spiritual transformation, the supramental transformation. We begin to see, who am I? Why am I here upon earth? The mother has put these questions we should raise every day to ourselves. In fact, they change our entire life. T.S. Eliot once wandered and uh, it was raining so he entered into somebody's farm and knocked at the door and the person asked, well, who are you? Why are you here? Where are you coming from? Where are you going? And this changed his entire life because whole night he was thinking, who am I? The mother in one of her conversations writes that. Raise these questions to yourself. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I coming from? Why are we here on earth if only to die? Why are we born on earth if only to die? These questions and we see beautifully the answers change. And as the answers change, so do we change. So this is the point of time when the little chick begins to be out. There is a journey in darkness, what is called as avidya. Through the darkness, the seed grows through darkness. It needs the cow dung, it needs waste. We have talked about that, about pain, struggle, everything. And then a time comes when the seed is ready to enter into the light. 
If you throw it prematurely into the light, it will burn away. So evolution reaches a point where the little earth cracks and we begin to see light. But initially it's too blinding light. And we are too eager to reach there. Not knowing that there are great beings who have done that effort. This too eagerness is a nice story where the little bird wants to touch the sun and the other bird says, it's a Greek myth as well as Indian myth, both is Nicholas and Nicarus as well as Jatayu and Samadhi. says, don't, don't do it in that eagerness. Do it, but there's a way to do it. But the little one, no, I'm going to do it. So in the process it burns its wings and comes down. So that's the message of the story, that there is a patient growth. The growth is slow, one needs perseverance, even when one begins to do conscious yoga. That is the point of initiation. Often people ask, what is the initiation ceremony in Shirobinda Yoga? This is initiation, the call. As beautifully yesterday we had the wake-up call. The call to yoga. One feels the need that this life as it is, one feels the prison of the ego. Oh, this is something else. There is something, it may be a vague feeling, an idea in the mind. Or maybe a burning aspiration that this is what one is here for. And then another level of evolution begins the journey into the light. From Avidya we move towards Vidya. And from Vidya we move towards that where both are reconciled into an inexpressible oneness. Vidya Ancha, Vidya yes, the way of Where both are reconciled and move together towards a yet greater truth. We'll close with that because it's somebody else's talk on the triple transformation. So we should not enter into some other area. But we close with Sri those beautiful lines about the apex of the evolution journey. Where do we reach and where are we going? And some beautiful lines from his poem. I'm sure all of us know it. The golden light. The golden light came down into my brain. And all my thoughts sun dust became. Look at it. Look at the expression, the marvel, the beauty, the joy, everything. We talk about transformation. It's, this is transformation. My golden light came down into my brain and all my thoughts sun-dust became. A bright reply to wisdom's occult plane. A calm illumination and a flame. Thy golden light came down into my throat and all my speech is now a tune divine. A pain song of thee, my single note. All that I say, all that I do is that song. A pain song of thee, my single note. My words are drunk with the immortal's wine. Thy golden light came down into my heart, smiting my life with thy eternity. And now has it grown a temple where only thou art, and all its passions point towards only thee. <coughs> This is the index of transformation. In our heart, who is there? Who is installed? The millions and trillions of gods and goddesses are that one. Thy golden light came down into my heart, smiting my life with thy eternity. And now has it grown a temple where only thou art and all its passions point towards only thee. Thy golden light came down into my feet. My earth is now thy play field and thy seat. Thank you.
but to understand it with a wider perspective. But equally, what one can understand is the aspiration behind that this should be a better world. Yes, and that aspiration should be constantly offered at the feet of the divine. That look, we would want that all this should not be there. That men should realize their own inner potential. They should grow towards your light. And that aspiration should be constantly offered. And, and I can appreciate that. That's a very beautiful aspiration. But at the physical level, the way of piety, of just providing things, may be counterproductive. Or it may make the person more inert. Thank you. One more question? Yes. Lodji, you talked about transformation and triple transformation. We are living in a world of technological advancement. The things are happening at breakneck speed. Even political boundaries are shattering. Is there anything happening in the spiritual world that can help human beings to have a quantum leap? And how can we be active participants? What are the things that you think shortly at our level we can understand to use it? A very beautiful thing. One thing which one should understand that technology in itself is neither good nor bad. Like money is neither good nor bad. It's the user. So that's the point which I was trying to say that mere technological advancement means nothing. What is important is the advancement of consciousness. But we have to understand because a new force has entered into the atmosphere, it is creating these upheavals and you know it's like an explosion of knowledge, explosion in every field. And uh, Shubhendu Longbanks writes something very beautiful. It's like uh, the mace of Bhima. He compares it to that. And if one tries to lift it, and one is not strong enough, it will crash. So one can, if, if human consciousness does not keep pace, in fact, again, this uh, people feel very bad about, uh, you know, a lot of things happening. Uh, there is nudity, there is sexuality, and many such things, and they feel very bad about it. Now here again, the same energy, which goes towards new creation is the same energy which, if wrongly turned, becomes the means for uh, procreation. It's the same energy. So, because there is an explosion of that new creative energy in the atmosphere, we find that there are channels which are not ready, which are extremely impure, and it gets diverted into sexuality, into lust, and everything. Though even that, the supreme diplomat uses. He ultimately makes one desensitize the boundaries between man and woman getting mixed. Uh, Blood. So there is a process which is taking place, the, the, the new consciousness is governing that evolutionary force. What we can do at our level, because mere technological advancement without human advancement can be counterproductive, which is what I was saying that this advancement has taken place earlier, much more than this, but yet civilizations have collapsed. What we can do is, at our individual level, to try to get in touch with that truth, and try to see how technology and everything of our life, we are not here to run away from life. But equally when it is said that all life is yoga, it is not meant that we live life the way ordinary person uses things. So technology can be used in a very beautiful way and it should be used. There is nothing wrong with it. But when this, those who are sadhaks, those who feel that they need to turn to a greater life, they should first, their first necessity, the first preoccupation should be to get in contact with their inmost being live by that, to live for that, irrespective of what is happening in the outer world. To begin with, that is the first necessity. And for that, I can just share with you what, I mean, I have understood of Shirdana and the mother and what I have tried to put into practice. 
someone asked Shirobindo, what is the central secret of sadhana? And he said two things. One, aspiration for the divine life. Uh, and then the person asked, what is the other secret? In fact, he said, the first secret is an aspiration for the divine life. So the person asked, what is the other secret? He said, an opening and surrender to the mother. This is the important, this is the crux, which as I have understood Shirobindo's sadhana is simply that if one can offer to the mother each and everything, and whether one is sitting behind the computer, whether one is moving in a car, whether one is doing one's job, whether one is doing whatever, you know, seeing patients, if one can remember and offer to her everything, all the events, I mean the prayer that comes to my mind is Radha's prayer, O thou whom at first sight I knew for the Lord and master of my being, receive my offering, thine are all my thoughts, all my feelings, all sensations, each cell of my body, each drop of my blood is thine. All that comes for, for me, uh, uh, all that comes from you, whether life or death, joy or suffering, happiness or, or pain, each of them is a gift, bringing with it the supreme felicity. So if that attitude, at least this is what I have understood, we can have in life, in everyday events of our life, our life will undergo a change and the entire circumstance within and around us will begin to undergo a change. At rest, it's a cosmic movement. One can understand it from a very wide outlook. But that's God's labor. He's carrying the collectivity in his own way. Is evolution time-sensitive? And if so, how do we fit in being essentially and predominantly this sudden changes, movements, revolutions and the movements which cannot be even contained or described and human being goes through a series of mental uh, stages we can call it like from minus infinity to plus infinity just to give the range. So out of thought we have leap on to sight in the sense that out of being a mental being and you go into spiritual being there is no other choice. Yoginda has said very clearly this is the inner man must overcome or miss his higher fate. This is the inner war without escape. So one has to leap from thought to sight. From being mental beings, one has to grow into spiritual being by whatever method. One method which, as I said, which I have understood Shirobindo is to offer oneself more and more to the mother, to open to her and let her take the charge of one's sadhana. If one does that, surely the change comes. And there is no doubt about that. It's, I mean, hundreds of people here would give a testimony to the change. You yourself, I'm sure, would give the testimony. So that is the one side what we can do and participate. And each one person participating in this way makes the time that much nearer. So it is time sensitive, but let us understand that the key is in the hands of the timeless and not in the hands of time. Time is merely a field of play of forces. Now as long as there is a play of forces in a certain way, you can predict maybe sitting here that this much will be the time. But tomorrow if new forces are introduced, at each moment the world is recreated. And that's what is meant by yesterday that uh, we heard that, yes, beautifully the mother has said from thousands of years she came to 300 years. And maybe it's shorter. It all depends 
on the play of forces that each moment this changes and there we can contribute to it by our own aspiration offered at her feet but again not for any individual ego's sake not for any individual supramentalization not for any individual yoga or becoming a yogi but because that is your will may your will be done whether I live to see it whether I perish or not whether I am destined for it or not it doesn't matter but this is my little contribution the bridge was being built between India and Lanka so Rama looks at that little gilari that squirrel and pats it so everybody says look at this that's not fair we have been doing all this labor and he pats at that little squirrel what kind of a thing you know is this so Rama says I understand your feelings but look you people are after all capable people and you are lifting things and putting into the you know the ocean you know what this squirrel is thinking it says I can't do so many things yet I want to serve my lot. So it rolls in the mud, goes into the ocean, takes a dip, comes back. And it believes that each of these small, small grains of sand which it's putting into the ocean will probably make the uh, you know level a little easier, make the task of the lot a little easier. So we may not be you know Arjuna and Vishra, uh, but we can be the little spirits of the lot. And I think if we can be that, we have done our bit. Thank you so much.